I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. That's a man called Smedley Butler, once a high-ranking Marine Corps officer, speaking in 1934 about what he had just told a congressional investigating committee, that he had been recruited by powerful business interests to spearhead a coup to overthrow the government of the United States. The idea was disarmingly simple, if frightening. Butler, a decorated major general, was being asked to lead an army of 500,000 veterans who would march on the Capitol and put a permanent end to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. General Butler accuses New York brokers of plotting dictatorship in the U.S., read the headline in a New York newspaper about Butler's dramatic testimony. It's an incident largely forgotten by the history books, but it's brought back to light in a new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, by journalist Jonathan Katz. Katz argues that the plot Butler exposed eerily anticipated the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. We'll talk to Katz about his book and why Butler's complicated story, from arch-U.S. imperialist to Democratic coup buster, remains relevant today on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Our colleague, Victoria Bassetti, can't be with us today, but we are joined by the aforementioned Jonathan Katz. Jonathan, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having me. So we've had this semi-regular feature on Skullduggery Buried Treasure in which we pick incidents from the past that are not well known, but shed light on events today. And when your publicist uh, sent me a copy of your book, it seemed to me this like fits squarely in what we try to do on Buried Treasure because this coup plot that um, uh, Smedley Butler exposed is not something I ever had heard about. Dare say it's uh, it's not well known, uh, even to, among uh, history buffs such as myself, but the details were pretty uh, striking, especially in light of what we all witnessed last year on January 6th. So I'd just like to start out, tell us what this business plot was and why they turned to Smedley Butler to lead it. So what we know about the business plot is basically through Smedley Butler's testimony in front of Congress uh, in 1934. He also conscripted a 
Philadelphia newspaper reporter to sort of do his own independent investigation. And then they testified alongside each other. What we know is that a representative of a powerful Wall Street stock brokerage, the representative was a guy named uh, Gerald C. McGuire, Jerry McGuire, came to Butler. Um, He started coming to him in 1933 and basically tried to recruit him into something. And it it took shape over the course of 1933, 1934. Um, At the start, it seemed like all McGuire really wanted Butler to do, and, and McGuire made it very clear that he was representing other people who, who were not there. Um, but the, what they wanted Butler to do was basically stage sort of like a mini coup within like the American Legion. And they wanted him to sort of like speak on behalf of people who were upset about FDR having unpegged the dollar from the gold standard, which he had done immediately after coming into office in, in 1933. But over the course of 1934, McGuire, this this sort of flirtation gets more intense. And McGuire starts sending Butler postcards from Europe. He sends him a, a postcard from the French Riviera. He's just gotten there from fascist Italy. Um, and then he sends him a postcard from Berlin, uh, where Hitler has, has taken power a short time before. And then he 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 asked Butler to to get together with him um, when he when he uh, uh, comes back to the states. They they meet in Philadelphia, and McGuire said he he lays out the idea that the plan is that Butler is going to lead an army of about half a million veterans who would have been World War One veterans, armed with uh, weapons from the Remington Arms Company through Washington, D.C., and that the idea was that they were going to intimidate Franklin Roosevelt. And the idea was that Roosevelt would either kind of step aside, he would remain as president, but give all of his executive authority to a new cabinet secretary um, who was supposed to be like, you know, a, a secretary of general welfare or a secretary of general affairs. And uh, McGuire compares this to basically what happened in Italy in the 1920s when, uh, you know, the the king of Italy was still the titular figurehead, but Mussolini became uh, yeah, prime minister. Mussolini's march on Rome was really the inspiration for exactly. this plot. But who was behind this attempted coup? That is, so So that's, that's the big question. Um, and it's a question that we don't today really have a clear answer to. Um, it's very clear that, that Jerry Maguire was part of it. And Jerry Maguire's boss was a financier named Grayson M.P. Murphy, who, in my research, as I was researching uh, Gangsters of Capitalism, it became very clear why Murphy would be the sort of person who'd be involved with this. He was an ex-military intelligence officer um, who had, had uh, B- Butler was recruited, because, we could talk about this more, Butler was recruited because he had, he had spent his life overseas overthrowing governments and you know, setting up US occupations. And Murphy had also been there sort of along the way. They never really, I don't have any clear indication that they were ever in the same room at the same time, but they certainly crossed paths in places like like, like Panama. The and McGuire mm-hmm. certainly had access to financing. He had plenty of money. Yes. Well, so, and, and just very, very briefly, so McGuire implies that the people who are really behind this 
are people who are much more powerful and much richer than Grace and Murphy. So the DuPont brothers are the top of this. The Morgan interests, so Thomas Lamont and uh, J.P. Morgan and company, Alfred P. Sloan of, of General Motors. All, and the way they all come into this is that they are part of this group called the Liberty League. And McGuire says that the Liberty League is going to provide the financing, the arms, and the influence to back this plot. The thing that we don't know is the extent to which the Liberty Leaguers were actually behind this and the, the extent to which they knew that they were behind this because Congress essentially dropped the ball and, and didn't investigate. So you alluded to this. It's understandable why Jerry Maguire would have gone to Smedley Butler, given his role in helping to overthrow uh, governments around the world on behalf of business interests and, and Wall Street. But I'd like to hear you, you know, draw the line, connect the dots between the business plot and what happened on January 6th, understanding that there are echoes and parallels, but it's not a uh, an exact replica. Yeah. You know, in uh, you know, January 6th, in, in some ways is worse, right? Because it actually happened. So you, you were noting that the inspiration for the, for the business plot in 1934 was, was Mussolini's March on Rome. The other inspiration, and in fact, uh, Jerry Maguire, the, the stockbroker, identifies it as a, a more direct inspiration, is another forgotten episode in history. Um, Americans don't generally know about this at all. It was on February 6th. 1934, the Cis Février, as it was called in France. And it was basically a riot of far-right fascists and one revolutionary communist group, because they always have to have one, who stormed the French parliament, spurred on by a crazy conspiracy theory at the time. And they wanted to unseat the center-left prime minister of France um, and actually did accomplish this. What was the conspiracy theory? It was so there There was an actual, it's called the Stavitsky affair. There, there was an actual instance of corruption, but in the popular imagination in France, especially among the far right, it had taken on these much larger proportions. And the idea was that sort of like the entire French government was under the thrall of a Jew named Stavitsky. It was sort of like the Jews were like taking over the French government and they were using Echoes it for their, their own Dreyfus purposes. affair, right? I yes, mean, yes, 100%, 100%. Yeah. And so there are a lot of, of clear parallels between that and you know, QAnon and things that are, that are happening today. The Cis Frevrier is a lot of, in a lot of ways, also the closest historical antecedent in terms of things that actually happened to what happened on January 6th. And it was what... Jerry Maguire wanted to happen in 1934 or 1935 or whenever this this coup that, that that Butler was going to lead was going to take place. It was, you know, it was supposed, it, there was plausible deniability involved. That's something that it has in common with January 6th. It was going to be just sort of this mob, this armed mob led by a military leader, but involving just sort of veterans with, with nothing but time on their hands. And if you look at what actually happened on January 6th, Veterans played a huge role in the storming of the Capitol and some active duty. Um, there was an active duty Marine who, you know, held open the doors in the East Rotunda, um, according to federal prosecutors, but we have it on video. You know, so there was, it was basically like, we're going to create a disturbance. We're going to create fear. And out of that fear and out of that disturbance, something will happen. And through that intimidation, we will get our way. 
Right. I mean, the, the intimidation parallel, you know, certainly leapt out at me. It was the sort of same sort of, you know, inchoate idea. Let's just create a, a giant, you know, march and a commotion and somehow we'll achieve our political ends. But of course, the other parallel that leapt mm-hmm. out at me is that Smedley Butler, who was recruited for this plot, tells all to a congressional investigating committee in response to a subpoena, unlike many of those who have been requested for cooperation by the January 6th committee and have refused to do so. But in reading your book, although the committee ultimately, and this is a special committee of the House Un-American Activities Committee, ultimately endorsed Butler's account... They really didn't do much of an investigation. No. If anything, it's not clear they did much investigating at all. It seemed yeah. like there were only like two members of the committee, right? I mean, there <laughs> wasn't very so robust. So why, why, why yeah. is that the case? <laughs> so it's, it's hard to answer because, you know, they're not around for, for comment anymore. The two members were, so it was, it was the chairman and I don't remember if it was a ranking member or, or just a second member, but they were the two leading members of the committee. The chairman was John McCormick, later Speaker of the House. Exactly. Um, And the other one was Samuel Dickstein, who who is alleged actually to have been a Soviet spy at one point in his life after this, by the way, Um, just in terms of of real life weird conspiracy theories that actually seem to have something behind them. So why didn't they go farther? It's unclear. It seems like so. So they met for a couple of weeks. This committee was, as you noted, it was HUAC. It was sort of a precursor to um, the House uh, uh, Un-American Activities Committee. At that time, it was known as sort of the Committee on Nazi Propaganda and Other Activities. And what they wanted to do is, Samuel Dickstein was was the one who, who really wanted this thing. And what they really wanted to do is they wanted to investigate Nazi influence, specifically Nazi influence in the United States. You know, this is the early 30s. The Nazis are on the rise. Hitler has become chancellor of Germany. And there were some, you know, groups in America, the Silver Shirts, the German-American Bund, that were actively involved with the actual, like, you know, German National Socialist Workers Party. And they were really interested in finding ways in which the Nazis were getting influence in the United States. And sort of as a way of both sides in the issue, they were also interested in, you know, is there any kind of Soviet influence going on, which obviously ends up becoming, you know, much more of Hueck's bailiwick later on. This is a complete homegrown plot. You know, the Nazis weren't involved. Mussolini wasn't involved. People who admired the Nazis and, and Mussolini were involved. And obviously, you know, as, as uh, Jerry Maguire uh, made clear to Butler, he was touring these places and trying to, to, to figure out, well, what are they doing that could work here? So part of the reason I think that maybe they didn't go further was because it seemed maybe a, a little bit off topic for them. The other thing was that, you know, the committee had a short lifespan. It was a, it was a special committee that only was going to be around for a little while. And Butler testified in November and this committee dissolved at the end of the year. Now they could have given the fact that like he had brought forward pretty compelling evidence that there was a plot to overthrow the president of the United States. I think that's the sort of thing where if they had, you know, gone to the then speaker and said, you know, hey, can we re-up this for, for another year? Maybe, you know, you can make a case that they should have. Why didn't they? I think I I only have speculation. I think, first of all, I I think that there was a sense that 
merely by blowing the whistle on this thing, that may have been all it took to throw this plot into chaos. Franklin Roosevelt, all, all that we know that, that he said about it was apparently he had like a one word answer. He was like, fantastic, which you can imagine Franklin Roosevelt saying in a Franklin Roosevelt voice. It may have been that, he, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, and he, and, and he talks about with, um, with his aide, his economic aide and friend, Rexford Tugwell, um, he talks about at this time that he's aware that there is a lot of sympathy for fascism among members of his class, among you know, the American business elite. At this point, democracy has been, liberal democracy and you know, American capitalism have been thoroughly discredited. We're in the pit of the Great Depression. Fascism and communism are on the march in Europe, and those look like, to a lot of people, the wave of the future. And Franklin Roosevelt decides that his response to this is going to be to, you know, move forward with the New Deal and show people that liberal democracy and that the government helping people can work for them. And so maybe there's a sense that more investigation that's going to get ugly and is going to sort of drag the names of uh, very powerful and very influential people in the United States through the mud. Maybe that's not necessary. So, Jonathan, let's step back a little bit. You know, Mike talked about the uh, business plot being kind of a little-known chapter in our history. Mm -hmm. Your larger story is fairly well-known in the sense that, you know, most history books have written about this chapter of of American imperialism uh, between about 1898 and almost up to the point when FDR is elected. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't really been absorbed. You know, I think the point that you make is that... um, our national myths, how we want to see ourselves, kind of overshadowed the true history. So Smedley Butler, as a Marine officer, was in the vanguard of this imperialist war. Tell us what you want the American people and anyone who reads your book to know about this this history that you don't think they know. So as you know, the book basically begins and ends with with, uh, the business plot. Um, and and Smedley Butler's sort of later life activism. Uh, But the meat of the book is these episodes of American imperialism. And as you note, almost all of them have been covered somewhere, but most people don't know about them. So one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to, to bring them together in one book and show the ways in which they were connected, both through, you know, a small group of people, including Smedley Butler, and philosophically, and the ways that they, they influenced each other. You know, I, I think that most Americans, I think, have heard of what's known as the Spanish-American War. I don't know how many Americans, certainly my age, know that we colonized the Philippines and that it was an American colony for, for half a century. People who study these individual countries, you know, people who study Haiti know about the U.S. occupation of Haiti. People who study uh, Nicaragua know about the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua but they often don't know about all of the other things that were happening at the same time. And so I'm trying to, A, bring them together so that we can get a larger view of a narrative arc that was American history over these decades in a way that most Americans don't think about ourselves. And the other thing is to you know, sort of unsilence the past and talk about these hidden histories and these things that are remembered very clearly in, in places like China that use their memory of U.S. interference and invasions over this period to inform their policies today that Americans you know, go into our dealings with places like China completely blind about because 
if we've heard about these things, it was, you know, one day in high school, you know, years ago, um, and, and we're not using them to sort of inform the way that we think about ourselves in the world. And Smedley Butler is such a fascinating character who seems to, who not seems to, did pop up at every one of these instances of American imperial Did you call him the Zelig overseas. of American imperialism, or did Pretty I just much. make yeah, that up? Just, no, yeah, <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> uh, I think Forrest Gump, you used that analogy Maybe as well. Forrest but tell Gump, us about go. Smedley yeah. Butler, how it is he came to be in all these places, and his fascinating evolution. So yeah, he was a, a Quaker from from the main line of Philadelphia, from an old old Quaker family. His father was a congressman, and he joined the Marines. He lied about his age at sixteen to join the Marines in the war in Cuba. Um, his very first posting is uh, the very first beachhead that the United States took in that war, a place called Guantanamo Bay, and from there um, he ends up everywhere, basically because the Marines go everywhere. You know, this is a period of, you know, sometimes they're known as, as small wars. Um, this is the, the, the moment when counterinsurgency is invented by Smedley Butler and, and a small number of other people. And the Marines are used sort of in the way that drones are used, you know, or, or that the CIA has been used um, over, you know, the uh, much of the 20th and, and early 21st century. It's kind of plausible deniability. It's a way of sort of getting American power into a place without drawing too much attention from the American public. And so everywhere that the United States goes to interfere, we tend to send the Marines. And there aren't a lot of Marines. Then as now, the Marines are the smallest branch of the service. Um, and as Smedley Butler starts working his way up the Corps, he starts out as a, a junior officer um, and then ends up the, the highest uh, rank available to Marines at the time of, of Major General. The, the number of officers who go to these places is even smaller. And so if you're drawing from, you know, this cast of characters to go and impose America's will on Mexico, on China, on Panama, actually, we create Panama, <laughs> the Marines do, essentially, you have a small group of people to, to pick. And so Smedley Butler is one of them. And that's how he ends up being Zelig or Forrest Gump, depending on on, on, on what generation of, of, of letters that you have. Yeah. So tell us a few examples of, of where mm -hmm. Smedley Butler went, what he witnessed, what he participated in. Let's let's start with the Philippines, sure. which, as you mentioned, uh, most Americans don't know a lot about in terms of our involvement there. So the Philippines, it's a Spanish colony. And when we declare war on Spain in 1898, uh, we declare war on the entire Spanish Empire, not just not just in Cuba. Uh, and Teddy Roosevelt, he's the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who's about to resign and go fight in the war himself in Cuba. And he's he he issues a memo that's like, you know, as soon as we declare this war, let's go take the Philippines. Philippines is a big expanse of land. It's about the length of the west coast of of the continental United States, and it's close to China, which was like the real goal then, as now of of a, you know, American capitalists. It's like it's like the market that everybody wants, and so we fight as we did in Cuba. We fight alongside the Filipinos against the Spanish, but then we betray them as we did in Cuba. And at the end of uh, the war against Spain, which only lasts for a couple of months, we then say. All right. Thank you very much for your service, Filipinos. We'll be taking over you now. And we make a $20 million payment to Spain and we make 
the Philippines a wholly owned colony of the United States. And you pointed out that Smedley Butler essentially invented counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. but the Philippines, the, the native Philippines were pioneers in insurgency. Um, yeah, because the Filipinos realize um, that they are not beating the Americans on the battlefield. Um, and so they shed their uniforms and, and uh, blend into the countryside and start uh, basically ambushing patrols. And then the initial response to this by the Americans is just brutality. We start concentration camps, which were a brand new concept at the time that had been pioneered by the Spanish in Cuba. We learned from them. We learn from the Spanish in the Philippines, a method of torture um, known as the water cure, which is an even more brutal version of what is now known as waterboarding. And we essentially, we essentially try to crush the Filipino insurgency through terror and sheer force um, and succeed. And we we occupy the Philippines as a wholly owned colony of the United States until the Second World War. And frankly, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why the United States gets into the Second World War, which is something that Smedley Butler sees coming and tries to warn against, is that the Japanese also want the Philippines and the Japanese feel this, this great power struggle happening with the United States as, as both the Japanese and the Americans are just sort of spreading out across colonies across the Pacific. And so we, we, we end up in this struggle. And, and on the same day, the same it's it's on the other side of the, the day line. So it was December 8th, 1941. But on the same day, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, they start their invasion of the Philippines because it's not really Hawaii that they're after. They're, they're, they're really after, after the Philippines and that string of colonies on, on the west side of the Pacific. To me, the most eye-popping chapters were the ones about Haiti and mm-hmm. Butler's role in Haiti. And I dare say, I don't believe most Americans really know the details or any of the details of the story. But basically, if I'm reading your book correctly, we invaded Haiti in 1915 under Woodrow Wilson. The Marines seized the gold reserves of the country and shipped them back to New York Smedley Butler, as the commander, leads a force that shuts down the National Assembly of Haiti, the elected government legislature, and he uh, organizes the building of highways using slave labor. Talk about the American role in Haiti, which lasted for, what, more than two decades or nearly two decades. 19 years, yeah. It was the longest continuous U.S. military occupation of anywhere until, until Afghanistan. Afghanistan, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the parallels between Afghanistan and Haiti are legion in terms of, of what the U.S. did in, in, in both of those places. Yeah. So Haiti, you know, I was I was the, the Associated Press correspondent in Haiti. I was I was there during during the earthquake in, in 2010. Um, Which is and, how you got on to this Smedley Butler to begin with. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. And I can confirm for you that most Americans have no idea that any of these things happen. I, I didn't know who these things happened until I until I moved to Haiti. The United States is in the process of occupying much of Central America and the Caribbean at this point. And Smedley Butler is the guy who's doing a lot of that. And I cover I cover all of those episodes in, in Gangsters. But Haiti is, is a really important spot. It is on the path to the Panama Canal. So the Windward Passage is you know a, a narrow expanse of water that goes between Cuba 
and Haiti. We've taken Guantanamo, right? That's where Smedley Butler's career began. And right across from Guantanamo is the Mola San Nicola, which is which is sort of the it's the other side of, of the Windward Passage. It's, it's the Haitian port. So that's really important for American strategy. And it is also the d- designs on Haiti um, go back a long way in American history. Haiti is the second independent republic in the Western Hemisphere. It was the first in which all people could be citizens, that all people were free because it was founded in a revolution of enslaved people who overthrew French imperialism. And it's also like a great business opportunity. Citibank. So at the end of the Haitian revolution against France, about a decade later, two decades later, France imposes an indemnity on Haiti in exchange for diplomatic recognition. They say, we'll make you an offer you can't refuse. We will recognize you if you pay us 150 million gold francs, which is you know, the equivalent of several billion dollars today, in exchange for having freed yourself. Um, and if you don't do that, we will invade you. Haiti says, sure, we will do this. And they pay it back. In order to pay it back, they take out loans from American banks and one of those banks is the National Citibank of New York, now just known as Citibank. And Citibank, in the early 20th century, they want to ensure their investment. They want to ensure the service on the debt. And this indemnity has roiled Haitian politics. And so there are all kinds of There's a series of coups that happen, and there's a lot of political instability in Haiti. And so it's Citibank. It's this guy named Roger Farnham, who is sort of a butler-like figure in that he just appears everywhere. Um, He's involved in the forced secession of Panama from Colombia. He's in the Philippines, et cetera. And he puts a bug in William Jennings Bryan's ear. He's the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. And he's like, hey, I have an idea to make sure that we get our money back. Why don't we stage this heist and we'll send the Marines and we'll rob the the, the Central Bank of Haiti, as as Michael said. And this then sets things into a complete tailspin in Haiti. And using this as a pretext, Woodrow Wilson orders the full invasion of, um, of Haiti by the Marines and by the Navy. And in doing so, we then set up a puppet president And then it just becomes a gold rush. And so all these American businesses want to get in on this. The problem is that there's still an independent parliament and they want to, they need to revise the constitution because under the Haitian constitution, foreigners can't own land, a legacy of of the Haitian revolution. And so Smedley Butler and his client army, his version of the Afghan national army, the the gendarmerie d'Aïti, go in and at gunpoint, dissolve the Haitian parliament. And then we basically, you know, run Haiti as a de facto colony for 19 years. You know who probably knows this story better than most Americans? I'm just guessing. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin, um, you know, uh, as he uh, uh, looks at American spheres of influence in our neck of the woods. And mm-hmm. Don't you lecture me. And of course, there's, there's, there's also I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about is the racism 
driving a lot of these policies. There's obviously the economic interests, you know, and the need to expand the American empire for all of strategic and economic reasons. But once they get there, Mm -hmm. racism is a driving factor, right? And Haiti is a good example of that. 100%. I mean, these things go hand in hand. One of the people that I lost a lot of respect for um, while I was researching this book was Theodore Roosevelt. I did not fully, look, I knew like, he was a man of his time, whatever. I, I did not fully appreciate just what a raging, you know, white supremacist he was. You know, he's he, you know, he he's writing about how, you know, it is the destiny of, you know, the white English speaking peoples of the world to, you know, reclaim the wilderness from the backward savages. Although I gotta say, somebody else who doesn't come off too well in your book is his cousin Franklin Roosevelt, <laughs> who was assistant secretary of the Navy yes. uh, and Smedley Butler's direct boss when yep. he was imposing American will on Haiti. And one of the things, I mean, I've read a number of FDR biographies over the years. One of the things I've never read in any of them is what you have in your book, which is that Roosevelt was setting up his own private investment scheme in Haiti while this was going on so he could profit from the American occupation. Yeah. um, Rexford Tugwell, FDR's uh, friend and economic advisor, described him as being perilously close to an imperialist. Um, I would take out the perilously close. And it's actually, that's an interesting thing, is FDR he kind of goes through sort of a similar transformation as, as Smedley Butler. Um, he kind of becomes a traitor to his class and, and a traitor to American imperialism um, when he becomes president. And thank God he did. But, but none of this would be possible without the Americans and it's principally white American. It's certainly white Americans who are, who are making these policies. None of it would be possible without them looking at the people in these countries that they are invading, occupying, killing people as being somehow less than themselves. It suffuses, it informs everything that they do, even though it's not necessarily a, you know, it's not necessarily like a a genocidal project. None of this would be possible if, you know, if they really looked at them as being equals. So Jonathan, you know, you talked before about Citibank, which is a financial institution that is obviously very much here today and remains uh, hugely influential, being a big factor in Haiti and in some of these imperial adventures. I have to bring up another American business interest that keeps coming up in, in your book, maybe because Mike will make fun of me for this, but I, for a long time, worked for a newspaper called Legal Times and <laughs> have an abiding interest in American law firms. But Sullivan and Cromwell... Mm-hmm keeps coming up. I mean, this is a white shoe firm, which is one of the biggest firms in the world, you know, revenues of more than a billion dollars, I think. Uh, but all the way back then, they were involved. I mean, they... they and the, whose the, senior partners were the two Dulles brothers, John Foster and Alan. Mm-hmm. John Foster, later Secretary of State, Alan Dulles, later Director of the CIA. So, mm-hmm. exactly. So, you know, there's the 1954 coup in Guatemala, which was essentially driven by Sullivan and Cromwell. They financed uh, the uh, Panama Canal. Tell us a little bit about about their role in American imperialism. Yeah. So as you know, William Nelson Cromwell, who is is the Cromwell and Sullivan and Cromwell, he's really the man behind 
this scheme to uh, rip away uh, the Colombian state of Panama and turn it into the Republic of Panama. I mean, long story short, Teddy Roosevelt, influenced by Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, who's, who's the, the big naval advisor um, and a very influential military theorist of the day, um, is basically like, we need a canal through Central America to connect the Atlantic and the Pacific so that we can connect the two coasts of our country and, and you know, create this sort of you know, bi-oceanic, trans-oceanic empire. But they're having a hard time digging it. And the place that they want to dig it is in Panama, which belongs to Colombia. Colombia doesn't want us to do it uh, without, you know, some concessions that, uh, you know, respecting their sovereignty and things like that, that uh, the Roosevelt administration doesn't want to accede to. And so William Nelson Cromwell, really, he, he's the one who basically sets in motion and, and oversees this. I mean, it's really, it's a conspiracy. Like, and, and this is actually one of the things that I think is important to, to understand. And it's something that I, I try to make clear throughout the book. Sullivan and Cromwell, Cromwell's conspiracy in Panama is not possible. It depends on, and it is often led by Panamanians, Panamanian elites, Panamanian capitalists. And that's one of the things that, that I really try to make clear in all these things. It's, it's easy to get lost in talking about what a malefactor the United States is in all these countries in all these times. And it's undeniable that we are, but there are also things happening within these countries, sometimes against our wishes, that we are trying to surf on top of, take advantage of, puppeteer. And that's a thing that Sullivan and Cromwell are very important in. They are bridges to you know, wealthy and allied interests in these countries that we are involved with. So the law ends up being, or the flouting of the law, as lawyers often do, ends up being a bridge between big American companies like United Fruit, big American banks like Citibank, and J.P. Morgan, the U.S. government, and the local elites and the local governments. And, and it's oftentimes, uh, it often takes the lawyers to be the ones who are sort of the go-betweens, connecting all of these, two, all of these different people with, with different interests to get them to sort of play well enough together to achieve their interests. A couple of other interesting characters who show up in your book, William F. Buckley Sr., father of the founder of National Review and the famous conservative columnist, was the front man for American oil interests in Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, which we also invade. And another one who really fascinated me is Josephus Daniels, who was the Secretary of Navy, boss of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the ultimate boss of Smedley Butler, who was a raging white supremacist, newspaper editor in North Carolina, who actually inspired a real-life coup in mm -hmm. Wilmington in 1898 yep. that overthrew the multiracial government in that city. So talk about uh, both of their roles in, in all this. William Bass Buckley Sr. So, you know, there's this is in Mexico. He's from Texas. And there's a lot of American influence going on in, in, in Mexico. This is the Mexican Revolution, which talking about things that Americans aren't familiar with, but, but essentially uh, there's a dictator, Porfirio Diaz, who's overthrown. And then there's, you know, sort of a, a period of, of warlordism where, where different competing interests are fighting against each other within Mexico. And there's, you know, this, this popular um, demand for rights and, and land and, and bread. And William F. Buckley Sr. 
is the lawyer for the oil companies. Um, oil has been discovered in Mexico a couple of years before this. And he is saying to the Wilson administration, this revolution is threatening our oil holdings. Um, my cousin's house got raided by Mexican revolutionaries. Um, and the only thing that will you know, help secure our interests here is a military intervention. And so he's actually the one who, who asks for an invasion, which happens in 1914. The United States invades uh, Veracruz um, and occupies it for a couple of months. Uh, we consider going to uh, Mexico City, and Smedley Butler actually go goes on a spy run to investigate this possible route, but, but we end up deciding against it. And so William F. Buckley Sr. is part of this cadre of Americans, and he's actually a part of a group of American you know, conservatives who leave Mexico as the, the Mexican Revolution ends up taking sort of a, a more left turn. And Ruse is, is very angry at, you know, the Mexican leftists for, for having uh, spoiled his, his good time because he was, you know, they were living high on the hog. But yeah, I mean, that's actually why if anyone's ever heard, especially, you know, people my age, uh, have, uh, you know, on YouTube or whatever, have heard uh, William F. Buckley Jr. speak in his weird diction, his, his, his weird accent. It was actually because he spoke Spanish before he spoke English, because he had grown up, he had grown up with his father who had lived in Mexico. And he ends up sort of like carrying this cross for the benighted conservative Catholic Americans who were, who were run out of Mexico. One thing that's interesting about Smedley Butler's role in the, the invasion of, of Veracruz is he's awarded the Medal of Honor, but he says he doesn't deserve it. And that's yeah. the Mike at the beginning of this conversation talked about Smedley Butler's evolution. You do start to see that he has a conscience and doesn't feel so great about some of the things he did. Not not enough to not continue doing it, but there is a there is an evolution there. Yeah, he's twice the recipient of the Medal of Honor, which is, is rare. But yeah, he tries to give back the first one. He actually probably should have gotten one before that for, for rescuing a man from uh, behind enemy lines in, in China, but at that time they weren't getting them to officers. But the invasion of, of Veracruz, I mean, Butler was right. It was a ridiculous battle. The uh, Mexican federal forces uh, had basically withdrawn by that point, and the, the main revolutionary army that was fighting against them wasn't in Veracruz. So when the Marines and, and the Navy Blue Jackets come ashore, they're essentially fighting against you know, children. It's a brutal battle. Uh, it's it's a uh, house to house fighting. Um, it's sort of a preview of of you know Fallujah. It's a preview of, of the kind of urban warfare that the Marines end up involved in. You know, later on, but sort of out of really out of embarrassment. This is the only way that I can interpret it. The Wilson administration just they give more awards and more medals for that battle than any other battle in in American history. Yeah, and he feels bad about that. He ends up not wanting to give back his second Medal of Honor. Mike, you, you mentioned Josephus Daniels, the, the, the white supremacist uh, secretary of the Navy. He's the one who Smedley Butler goes to and is like, can I give this medal back? And he's like, hell no, <laughs> you're going to take this because you're part of the propaganda effort and we're not going to admit you know, fault here. So yeah, you know, Butler at the end of his life, in the last decade of his life, to summarize it, you would call it a change of heart. But you know, in a lot of ways, he's going back to his roots. And he grew up as a Quaker. Um, he grew up, you know, from this sort of pacifist egalitarian tradition. He joins the Marines in 1898 to fight against the Spanish empire. 
And so, you know, he, he considers himself an anti-imperialist and like a lot of Americans, and this is a good thing about America, you know, we, we think of ourselves as even today, even with frankly, the fascist turn that is, that is happening in the Republican party um, and, and uh, you know, in, in, you know, the, the, the democratic decline that is happening in American life, you still have to couch your plans in rhetoric of small R republicanism, uh, small democracy. You have to say, we're doing these things for self-government. We're doing these things, you know, for the people or whatever. It's But that's not what Smedley Butler was saying at the end of his life. He writes this book, War is a Racket, and, yeah. uh, and there's a delicious quote uh, which you use from it. And during that period, he's talking about his 33 years in the Marine Corps. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. Mm-hmm. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. Right, right. He became a lefty yes. <laughs> at the end of his no, life. He did. He did. Yeah. His last vote. His last vote in the presidential election was for Norman Thomas, the the socialist yeah. candidate in, in 1936. Yeah. He. What's going on here is that both of these things are true, right? The United States. The United States does have a long democratic tradition. We also have a long imperialist tradition. We are the country that whose founding document says all men are created equal. We are a country that was born in slavery and exploitation the stealing of, of, of native land and all, you know, all these things, right? Both of those things are true. And what's going on here is that Butler comes in believing in this mythologized version of America, which is a very important mythology. And it's a thing that many Americans do try to live up to. And then the scales fall from his eyes over the course of his, his years overseas and his disappointments and his PTSD and his experience with moral injury. And then when the business plot happens, when he sees that, you know, moneyed interests are trying to do the same thing to the United States that they did to all of these other countries through the Marines, through people like Smedley Butler, he draws a line and says, enough, I'm, I'm, I'm against this now. And to a certain extent, you could detect some hypocrisy, although, as you note, that bit, it's, it's from a, an essay that he wrote in, in Common Sense in a magazine in 1935, and he's taking himself to task. He's saying, I was a criminal. I was a racketeer for capitals. And that's where the, the title of my book comes from. It comes from him. So in wrapping up and bringing the story to the present, yeah. one of the things that I thought was really interesting about how you structured the book is in between... Uh, every place, you went to those places and you write about those places now. So tell us about how the politics of of these various places where the U.S. had such a large and often violent presence is still affected by that legacy. I mean, you know, the the Philippines, uh, Nicaragua, Haiti, all of these places. Yeah. So there are direct and there are indirect effects. In Haiti, Haiti's poverty and Haiti's lack of sovereignty is a direct result of over 100 years of, of U.S. interference and occupation, going back to the occupation and the invasion that Smedley Butler was part of, but it still is happening today on the other side of the assassination of, of the Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, et cetera. And then in other respects, it's the memory of these events that is still driving politics in these countries. So China is, is I think, you know, the biz- biggest example. I was in China, spent a month there doing research for this book. There's 
two chapters of the book in, in China, one during the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 and the other uh, at the outset of, of uh, the, the Chinese Civil War between the communists and the nationalists in the 1920s when, when Butler came back as a general. And China, they're very good at hitting you over the head with messaging. And one of the messages that they really hit you over the head with is that they have this history of humiliation, national humiliation, the hundred years of humiliation, and that these humiliations by the imperialists, by Britain, by France, by Russia, and by the United States, among others. And they really play up the United States part of it because you know we're, we're, we, we have this emerging great power rivalry. They say, you know, we have been humiliated before. It was because we were weak. The only way to keep from being humiliated and bullied now is by being strong. And, you know, these moments that that Americans don't really know about. I mean, I, I think if you go down the street, you might find some people, but it's it's going to be a rare person, you know, who knows that the United States uh, invaded China in, in 1900 and, and was part of it, you know, imposing this indemnity. You know, I was talking about the indemnity in Haiti. We did one with China too on China after that invasion. And we're there in, in the 1920s. And we're there, you know, continuing to try to influence, you know, Chinese politics right up until basically, you know, the communists uh, uh, won the, the civil war in, in 1949. Look, it's a complicated story. I am not at all trying to say, United States bad, China good. That's not what I'm saying here, right? And I talk in, in, in the book at length about things that, you know, any China tankies are going to get very angry at, at me talking about the persecution of the Uyghurs and, you know, the Chinese surveillance state. And, and really, I end up in a, in a, in a it's a scene in the book, but I, I end up uh, sitting down with Chinese scholars of the Boxer Rebellion, and I start pressing them. I'm like, but how do you feel about the fact that China is doing the same things now that the United States was doing then, right? Like you're like you're opening overseas bases, you're opening sort of, you know, your own versions of, of Guantanamo without the gulag, although you've got gulags going on elsewhere. And you're trying to, you know, claim colonies in the Pacific. And like, do you ever wonder, like, are you kind of going down the route of, of you know, the imperialists that we're here denouncing? Um, and they responded by, uh, uh, ending the meeting and canceling lunch. Um, but nonetheless, like it's really, really hard to have a conversation about these things that really matter, about these great power struggles that are that are emerging between us and China, us and Russia, and the way the world is built in 2022 without understanding the full extent of the story. And that's what I'm really trying to do in, in Gangsters. And that's why I, I go to these places is to, is to recover these, these um, silent bits of, of uh, historical memory that Americans don't know about, but are still informing policies and, and, and attitudes elsewhere. I don't know if I succeeded. It was, it was an ambitious task. Well, you've, you've succeeded in uh, illuminating for our listeners uh, <laughs> the complicated legacy of American interference in countries in our backyard and also around the world. The book is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 